0: Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, welcome back to
1: Carolina Newsmakers. Delighted to be back with you. And we are delighted also to welcome Cody Hand with us. Cody is the Senior Vice President of Government Relations and the Deputy General Counsel for the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And of course, if there's one thing that is on the minds of almost every listener we've got, and that's the matter of healthcare because healthcare costs Uh, are such an important part of our budget and so much an important part of our lives. So Cody, thank you for being with us. And uh, generally speaking, uh, give us a little bit of background on the North Carolina Healthcare Association and and exactly what you do for them. And then we'll get into some more specific topics after that. So sort of give us a little background on the association and what it does.
2: Thank you, Don, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So the North Carolina Healthcare Association is the trade association for all North Carolina hospitals and health systems. We also have in our membership ambulatory surgical centers and some vendors who provide services and goods to our member hospitals and health systems. We've been around a little over a hundred years. We celebrated our centennial in 2018 and then we went right into a pandemic. Uh, What we do for for the, the member hospitals is both represent them at the General Assembly and before our members of Congress and and have laws passed to the benefit of our patients and also help legislators continue to not make bad policy by giving them a a heads up whenever something's proposed that may not help our hospitals continue providing the care for the patients. What we also do is uh, put our members in touch with vendors who provide the the goods that you see in a hospital at a cheaper rate. So we have a group purchasing organization and what that does is it delivers a lower cost product to our hospitals so that they can pass those savings on to the patients. Um, So we we do that and then we also focus on some other issues. So right now we're looking at cost transparency. How can we provide our patients with the data on costs that they deserve and that they should know before they get the care they they need. and also working to make sure that, uh, we have the best networks for the, the populations that we serve, be it Medicare, Medicaid, or the private insurance market.
1: Well, I'm sure that most of our listeners are sort of like me. You, you have coverage from an insurance company. And so you get a bill from the hospital and usually it's three or four months after the service, uh, that the insurance finally comes around and, you get this bill it says that the services were four thousand dollars the insurance company paid twelve hundred dollars you owe zero and i've i've always been mystified of what happens to that 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 difference between what they supposedly charged and what the insurance paid and how can i owe zero uh how because we had this third party involved in the relationship between the patient and the hospital we have the insurance carrier and in some cases the, the government with medicaid and medicare That's very confusing to people. How how do we make this more, uh, uh, more, uh, as you said, transparent and more, uh, uh, so that the patient can better understand what's going on?
2: You know, Don, it is confusing even for a hospital lobbyist. You know, that explanation of benefits always just really confuses me. Um, You know, those numbers are really interesting because that that higher rate that you see tends to be what the hospital would have to charge you if you weren't covered by insurance, or if all of our patients weren't covered by insurance. Um, The good news is because of the negotiations that happen between the insurance company and the hospital, uh, they tend to get a lower rate uh, for that service. And that's because oftentimes that means that hospital is getting the bulk of the patients that are covered under that plan. And so they can spread that cost around uh, to different patients. You know The the idea that we need to make it more transparent is not a new idea. I think the question is, how do you do it? Um, And um, when you have a scenario where one payer pays a rate that has been negotiated, for example, the private insurance, but another payer, such as Medicare, doesn't negotiate the rate, they they pay what they want to pay. Um, It really is interesting for us on how do we make sure that our patients are getting the information to make the best decision that they can make. And we're still working on that, Don. And, and I think what we really need is not to hear from people who pontificate about what it should be. We wanna hear from our patients about what is the, the most useful information for them to ensure that we can provide that. I do think that we send a lot of notices to patients that probably may not be necessary now, because it you know the top says, this is not a bill. Well, I don't wanna see it if it's not a bill, right? I wanna know what I'm on the hook for. And I don't want it in six months. I want it today. And so we we're trying to figure out how to get there as fast as we can. Well, on
1: the other hand, the hospitals have a problem. I mean, they provide a service in, say, September. And the way that the system works, it looks like to me, that they don't actually ever get paid for three or four months. How, how, do, they, how do they operate? Uh, with, but because essentially they've become a, uh, a lender at that point in time. That's
2: right, if they get paid at all. And if you'll remember, uh, many of our patients come through the emergency department. And under federal law, and pretty much by our practice, we're not allowed to know what we'll get reimbursed for. We provide the service. We provide the care they need to become medically stable. And we do that regardless of their ability to pay. We don't even ask the question. And so to your point, if we get paid for that service, it's often in the next quarter or three or four months away. And so your hospitals are figuring out how can we make our resources stretch for that three month, four month period while we're working on getting reimbursed. So we're all kind of waiting on the reimbursement game just like our patients are.
1: Is there essentially a difference in the way that hospitals build between the so-called nonprofit organizations like say UNC Healthcare and the for-profit hospitals, and I guess your organization actually represents both. What's how do they? Uh, what, what are the differences in the way they they carry on their businesses that uh, uh, end up affecting the patient?
2: I'm actually not aware of what they anything they do different that uh, impacts the patient. Uh, most of the differences you'd see between a for-profit institution and a not-for-profit institution, which we do have both in our in our association is really on the back end. So that the not-for-profit organizations are obligated to take any excess revenues they have and put them right back into the system. Um, so they, they basically share their what would be a dividend, they share that with the community through reinvesting in the facility. Uh, whereas your investor-owned operations have an obligation to their shareholders to take that excess revenue and either return it to the shareholders through a dividend or through a reinvestment into the, the company that manages that system. The patients, by and large, do not see a difference uh, in investor and, and, and in nonprofit, primarily because they're bound by the same federal laws that require they treat them the same.-
1: Where do the hospitals stand on this issue of expanded Medicaid, which is uh, an issue that General Assembly happens to be, wrestling with right now, North Carolina, one of the states that has elected not to do it, but is considering it. Uh, what's the position of the uh, of your association in this regard?
2: That's a great question, Don. The North Carolina Healthcare Association wholeheartedly supports Medicaid expansion. And we have since the, the day it was proposed in 2010, and we have every session since then. We're encouraged that both the Senate and the House have passed legislation to move the ball forward, now the Senate's bill uh, had some poison pills, but its expansion component is the right component because it fully expands Medicaid. The House's bill gets us there too; it's just in a bit of a delayed timeline. But we fully fully support expansion.
1: What do you, do you think between the two houses they will come to an understanding and it will ultimately uh, be become law?
2: I sure hope they do. I know that. As we speak, they're having the conversation.
1: So how much, how much money is involved in uh, that would actually be paid to the hospital that somebody else is paying now that Medicaid expansion would cover?
2: So Medicaid pays hospitals about 70 to 80% of the costs of care, uh, for the patient, and that would be however much money more than we get today from Medicaid, from the non-Medicaid patients or the uninsured who pay us anywhere from nothing to a discounted rate. Um, But let me tell you what it would do for the rest of us, for those of us who wouldn't qualify for expansion. It would mean that those patients on Medicaid who are our neighbors, who are our classmates, who are our family, have access to preventative care. So they don't have to wait until the very sickest of their time to get the care they need so they can prevent something it also means that congress has put billions of dollars on the table for states to adopt expansion and north carolina would get between two different programs would get over four billion dollars a year if we expanded medicaid now that comes from pure expansion that congress put in place and then there's another program that we're advocating for called the Healthcare Access and Stabilization Program that would bring in another 3 billion on top of what Medicaid expansion would bring us. And so that money could go right into the general fund. It could go right into paying for the Medicaid expansion. It really is an all winner situation, Don.
1: So those numbers you gave us start with a B, not an M. There's a 3 billion, a 4 million. A uh, absolutely 4
2: billion. Billion, B. Yeah.
1: That's that, uh, as uh, Senator Everett Dirksen said a long time ago, sooner or later, you're talking about big dollars here. So <laughs> that's right. That's a, that's a lot of money. Uh, why, why has North Carolina been slow on this to,
2: uh, to move toward this? Well, you know, I think they were very methodical at the General Assembly. You know, we we just transformed Medicaid. and when the General Assembly flipped parties about a decade ago, the Medicaid program was broken. It was running a huge deficit every year and the General Assembly set out to repair it. And at that time, Senator Berger promised us, we'll fix Medicaid and then we'll talk about expansion. And he's held true to his promise. Um, they have transitioned to a managed care platform where the Medicaid population is put into essentially the private market through managed care organizations, and, and they're able to better manage their care. I think now that we are in the process of year two of managed care, the General Assembly finally sees that it's time to expand Medicaid. So I don't want to talk about what took them so long, as long as they finally get there.
1: And of course this affects not only the hospitals, but also the other providers, such as private practice uh, uh, physicians and so forth.
2: That's right. Every medical provider who enrolls to take Medicaid patients can benefit from this about 600,000 North Carolinians who will now have access to insurance.
1: 600,000 would be covered, uh, further or, uh, for, for, for the first time.
2: For the first time.
1: That's an incredible amount of money and an incredible amount of, uh, resources for the healthcare system. And somehow uh, most of that's being paid by some other way because, uh, the people that are affected are not going totally without medical care. So I guess it's coming out of other pockets right now, and that makes a big difference. Well, uh, Cody, we've got lots of other questions that we want to get to in the next segments of Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is Cody Hand. He is the Senior Vice President of Government Relations and the Deputy General Counsel for the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And we'll take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about... uh, again, the cost of health care and what hospitals are doing and what the association is doing to see about uh, reducing some of those costs. We'll do that right after these messages.
0: Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to
2: put food on our table.
1: Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
0: Excuse me. I know you have a 9 o'clock, so I'll keep this short. I'm the business suit in the back of your closet. You wore me nearly every day before
1: your office went, quote, casual. I used to be the CEO of your closet. Now I'm just that one
0: intern no one ever talks to. I always thought you'd circle back with me. Get granular. Keep me in the pipeline. But nada. Nothing. Don't you remember the McKittrick presentation? You spilled coffee on me, and I still looked amazing during the breakout talkback Q&A. So, I think it's time for me to move on. I've got a great resume, and I absolutely
1: crush it in interviews, okay? Let's make this a clean break. Shift the paradigm. The only thing I ask is that you think outside the box here and do this. Take me to Goodwill, where I can really make a
0: difference. Your donations to Goodwill create new jobs, training programs, and education assistance for people in your community. To find your nearest donation center, go to Goodwill.org. Donate stuff. Create jobs. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our topic this week is health care, and our guest is Cody Hand. He is the Senior Vice President of Government Relations for the North Carolina Healthcare association and the healthcare association is made up principally of hospitals and those type of institutions that provide healthcare. Uh, of course, everybody is concerned about the rising cost of healthcare. A couple of things are working against us is that people are living longer, and of course, as you live longer, people have more and more medical problems, and there are more people to serve. And then, secondly, we are making a lot of medical advances, and these these come with cost. Uh, So, uh, considering the fact that we're expanding the base uh, by aging the aging population and considering the fact that we are always finding out new ways to serve the public, how do we put a cap on healthcare costs, percentage-wise, I guess is the best way to to ask the question.
2: Well, that's a loaded question, Don. Um, I, I think, you know, I'll go back to our conversation earlier. Expanding Medicaid will actually cut back on some of those costs because it will ensure that for that 600,000 North Carolinians, uh, we're getting reimbursed for their care. And we don't have to figure out how to make the system work to pay for those patients care. For the rest of us, you know, we all have a stake in our own health care outcomes and we shouldn't be waiting until we're so sick we have to go to the emergency room to get care. So preventative issues such as your annual physical, uh, such as making sure that you are eating healthy and exercising, smoking cessation programs, all of those things, if you take care of them on the front end are much less costly than if you wait until it's too late. So that, that would be point number two. Uh, to your point, Don, about, about the, uh, the aging population needing more intense care and the more advanced technologies. You know, there's a way if you can scale those that you can actually bend the cost curve by spreading out those services and spreading out those those patients um, on a kind of a broader basis, if you will. And then finally, I will say that um, dealing with prescription drugs is essential. Um, the, the cost overruns for medicines these days is outrageous. You know, hospitals are often criticized for the markup on those medicines, but the, that markup is really looks a lot like your hospital bill where you don't actually ever pay that marked up price because there's a negotiated rate with the insurance companies and with the pharmacies and with the, the pharmacy benefit managers. But if you look at the highest cost growth, Don, in, in America these days, it's prescription drugs. And uh, they're very expensive. And you know, unless you're willing to pay the cost, you don't get the drugs. And so- I've got
1: a personal example that I'd like to see if you can put any uh, make any sense to. I, I've been taking a medicine for years. Uh, it's an old medicine. It's been around for a long time. It's, it, it was expensive 15 years ago, but in that uh, period of when I started taking it, uh, but since that time, it's gone up four times. Well, there's no more research on this product. It's the same product, uh, but I hear this a lot and. Uh, we hear it with uh, uh, insulin uh, uh, the fact that insulin is cost has gone up uh, uh, so much over the last five or 10 years. How does the, uh, how can the providers of these products justify this?
2: I think you'll have to ask them. I don't think you can justify the cost skyrocketing of those prescription drugs. I think um, it's, it's not a tenable situation that we're in Don when your prescription that probably is off patent now, has gone up that much in the past 15 years.
1: Well, even in my particular case, it got to the point where the generic was actually more expensive than the regular medicine, which is, uh, you know, that 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 has to be a joke. That has to be something that's questioned.
2: I wish I could give you the answer.
1: Well, who, who actually is the one we ought to turn to? Is this something Congress could be, should be, and uh, could be working on or? Uh, I know the insurance companies are probably worried about it, and, uh, and are doing what they can. But uh, uh, it doesn't seem like there's a, as much discussion about this as it maybe warrants.
2: Um, I think I think yes, it's a federal issue. I think it could be a congressional or an FDA issue. I also, um, if, if you look, there's been quite a bit of litigation over the past few years for those companies who do increase their charges for those medicines exponentially but i do think there is a federal need for intervention uh, by congress to make sure that those drugs are uh, appropriately priced and are not skyrocketing for no reason
1: i'm going to change the subject but this also gets into the area of health care cost uh, we had a curveball thrown at us about two and a half years ago when this word uh, came into existence called COVID. <laughs> what did that do to the hospitals and their management? And how have they uh, uh, adjusted, I guess, to the effects uh, of, of uh, the whole epidemic problem that we've had?
2: You know, I, I've never been more proud to work for the Healthcare Association than when watching my members really deliver the best care they could to deliver our entire state and nation through their pandemic, you know, absent a hospitals' presence in the initial days of the pandemic, we wouldn't know what we would do, and and so they they delivered. Their staff stepped up, and we really are better off as a country now. We've gotten through COVID now because of our hospitals, but it 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 hit, and it hit hard. Don and and in the early days when we were worried about PPE. And when we didn't know how the disease progressed, we had to do everything we could to stop it from spreading, even with our own walls. And so that first year, we cut out all those elective procedures that weren't necessary for a good three month period in North Carolina. And every one of your hospitals at that point saw a loss in revenue from those procedures. And they really didn't know how to make it through the end of the pandemic. We didn't know how long it was gonna last. And so that's when Congress stepped up and passed the, uh, the the Provider Relief Fund and sent monies to hospitals to cover those losses and to cover the, the, the tremendous amount of need for the COVID patients. Um, what it also did, Don, and we're now in the stage where we're realizing the damage done to our staff and to our staff morale and to our recruitment is it took an already dire, shortage of nurses and really just accelerated the losses and so because of our staff costs because of their overwhelming uh supply costs and supply shortages most of your hospitals right now are having the worst year of their financial life in 2022 because it's all finally come to a head and they're all struggling with how to continue the operations on the scale they have now.
1: So basically this is one of the things where we actually sort of kicked the can down the road a little bit, but we're paying the piper now. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, as you said, it had, a t- uh, you know, the, the North Carolina hospitals actually seemingly did a much better job than most of the hospitals across the country, because North Carolina, basically never got to the crisis situation so many of the other states got to it It was a i guess it was a crisis but it was never one that uh uh, we felt like well gosh
2: what do we do next it was a manageable crisis and you know we have i don't know if it's a benefit don or not but hurricanes have trained us well for how to deal with a crisis and so we were able to go into disaster mode quickly Um, but also I think working with our state with our elected leaders with our department of health and human services and with the public we were able to limit the spread of the virus to keep it at a manageable level now it was manageable from a a personnel level it was barely manageable from a financial level
1: we have uh, so many cases of COVID continuing but most of these cases now are with people who have been vaccinated at least once and maybe twice, and maybe even a booster. Uh, But their cases are much milder, apparently, than what we were having at first. Um, Is there any explanation for why people who are vaccinated are still uh, subject to catching COVID?
2: I wish I could give you the answer to that, Don. Um, I've been vaccinated myself, gotten my boosters. I don't know that I've had COVID, but I know plenty of people in my situation who have had COVID. Um, Most of the clinicians that I know who got the vaccine and who also got COVID were thankful that they didn't get COVID before the vaccine. Um, So while it it was never intended to fully prevent someone from catching COVID, the the goal, much like the flu vaccine, is to prevent you from suffering from a a serious or even fatal case of the, the disease.
1: Of course, we were blessed last fall because uh, wearing masks apparently did cut down on ordinary flu and ordinary colds. I understand from what I read that we had probably the lightest case of ordinary flu uh, and ordinary head colds we've had in years. And uh, so uh, wearing masks still has some merit. I'm wondering if we this fall are going to see a uh, return to the mask, not for COVID, but for ordinary flu and colds. Uh, is this something you think the association and the hospitals will be pushing?
2: We're definitely going to be looking at it. The data is overwhelmingly convincing. Our flu fatality rate went into the, the single digit percentage wise. Um, and, and it was, again, because masks and overwhelmingly convincing data that they actually helped cut back on flu fatalities and on colds. So I do think we're looking at it from a clinical perspective. Is it necessary as the flu starts to ramp up to put our masks back on to protect ourselves from that?
1: Well, you know, I've I've gotten out of the habit of wearing a mask, but I would certainly uh, welcome if everybody put their mask back on, I would certainly join that crowd because colds and flus uh, uh, were always a part of my life. And uh, in many cases, not the real live flu, because most people have a virus, think they got flu, and that's not necessarily right. always right. the case. Yeah. Uh, well, it's uh, were there the other lessons that we learned for the whole COVID uh, pandemic situation that uh, you think will serve us well in the future?
2: There were some silver linings to COVID. First of all, I think telehealth was in its infancy before COVID and people accessing preventative and routine and chronic illness care remotely was really kind of an idea we were toying with. But because of COVID, um, we we Zoomed about 20 years ahead in telehealth. And I would say that is the silver lining is that we now have platforms and patients who receive routine care and, and routine chronic care through telehealth. My wife last week did a telehealth consult for the flu to your point, she didn't have the flu, but she did speak to a physician about um, her symptoms and got a prescription uh, prescribed for her through telehealth. We've got patients who live in rural North Carolina who used to have to drive an hour to two hours to get a chronic condition appointment, Um, can now do that from the comfort of their living room and still receive the same quality level of care that they had before. Another thing that we've started doing is hospital at home. And we can talk more about that later if you'd like, but it basically is an inpatient stay, but you're in the comfort of your own house and the outcomes there again are are really good.
1: Well, you know, as you said, uh, there's not ever a true silver lining to something like we had, but there are experiences that we can learn and benefit from. Our guest is Cody Han. He's the senior vice president of government relations of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, which basically represents the hospitals in the state of North Carolina. And we will be back with another segment. And I want to zero in on that uh, topic that you brought up, the, the problems that, that we have in our rural communities versus the problems we have in our urban communities. And we'll do that when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned.
0: You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team, but I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with
1: Cody Hand, the Senior Vice President of Government Relations of the North Carolina Healthcare Association, which basically represents all the hospitals in the state of North Carolina and and, uh, other organizations similar to hospitals in providing healthcare for North Carolina. As we said, when we started the program, everyone is concerned because we all have, real concerns about the rising cost of health care. The, the market is getting bigger, people are living longer, new developments are coming down the pike, and all of that uh, complicates the, the uh, business of uh, reducing the cost of health care. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act, which uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of controversy about it, but seemingly there's less controversy about it and is this because people found out that it actually some uh, parts of it worked that they didn't think were going to work? Or why are we more, uh, content with the, uh, affordable care program that we were when it was first instituted?
2: I think that's anybody's guess, Don, but I, I my guess is, you know, 10 years gives a lot of distance, uh, and, and heals a lot of wounds, you know, Good parts of of the Affordable Care Act include Medicaid expansion, uh, include um, some regulations on what we can and cannot do as medical providers, um, and really streamlines the process for obtaining insurance on the private market. Um, I think that, you know, once the Supreme Court made their decision on the Affordable Care Act shortly after its passage, we as providers just you know, we didn't get involved in the discussions and the controversy we just started working to to adapt to it and to make sure that we were there to provide all the care we could for our patients so i think it's time i think it's uh, it's it's the fact that we still have a health care system and we still um, continue to operate i will tell you a lot of the cost reductions of the affordable care act have been delayed um so medicare reductions were, were put in place to offset the cost of Medicaid expansion and those continue to be delayed. Um, so some of the financial um, reductions have not yet been realized, uh, but I think it's given us time to absorb all the other requirements of the ACA. Well, North
1: Carolina, I'm going to change the subject going, you know, North Carolina is sort of a unique state in the fact that we have have and have-nots all over the place. We have about 20 counties in North Carolina that are growing very rapidly. Uh, the Greenville area, the Asheville area, the Wilmington area, and then the area between uh, Charlotte uh, through Greensboro, uh, all around to Raleigh. All those areas are flourishing, and about usually represents about 20, 25 counties. And then we have the other 75 counties, and some of them are quite remote uh, and are very small. And so we've got a unique situation, not only as far as healthcare, but also education and other matters as well. But So how, how do you see our hospitals uh, covering this unique problem of providing service for the entire state when indeed some people, as you said a few minutes ago, are sometimes as far away as two hours from uh, the medical center?
2: Yeah, we, in addition to being one of the fastest growing states, Don, we're one of the most rural states for, for a population standpoint. Um, and it is an interesting scenario for hospitals. I think that's part of why you see several rural hospitals recently have affiliated with a system. And the reason for that is because having access to this full spectrum of care in rural North Carolina is really not an option anymore. Um, Because of the availability in urban areas of good jobs for spouses, good schools for the kids, there's really no incentive for a provider to locate in rural North Carolina. And so we're doing more with telehealth. We're doing more with remote consultations. And when a smaller rural hospital joins a larger system, they're immediately uh, adopted into that network of care that has the access that that rural community may need now it may not be on site but it is within that same system uh, their challenge mainly these days is staffing um, unless we can figure out a way to grow our own rural staff we're having to really redo how we deliver rural health care to accommodate the decreasing supply of doctors and nurses in rural north carolina
1: Another thing that I've always been curious about is state borders and state lines. Does that create a problem? If, for example, about a third of the Charlotte market is actually in South Carolina. If you go up to Elizabeth city in that area, they're actually closer to a lot of the medical facilities in Virginia, than they are in North Carolina. Uh, Asheville is in the Western part of North Carolina, in many cases, closer to Atlanta than they are to in the major cities in Charlotte and North Carolina. How does that work? Does that create a problem or is that just uh, overlooked as as far as payments and so forth?
2: It doesn't really create a problem, Don. In fact, I I will say because we have the, some of the most world-class hospitals in the country, we're happy for those open state lines. Uh, Anybody's welcome to come and get care in North Carolina. Well,
1: and we do have uh, a a situation where we've got uh, uh, three really, well-known medical centers that are doing an incredible amount of research, UNC Chapel Hill, of course, Duke and Wake Forest, uh, Winston-Salem, Bowman uh, Gray, uh, all are doing incredible amounts of research, and that brings in a lot of medical, uh, a lot of dollars to the state. But it also puts us in a position of uh, of recruiting a lot of really bright people to the state. Um, What is the relationship between the medical schools and the hospitals where there is a medical school located?
2: Uh, As far as I know, Don, they're really good relationships. It's a very symbiotic relationship. We need each other to coexist. Um, And so anytime we can get more medical students into North Carolina, there's always going to be a hospital for them to practice at, at least to to do their residency. Um, Those relationships are really good. In fact, you just saw somewhat of a merger in ECU Health where the medical school, the Brody Medical School and the the Biden Medical Center really formally partnered up. And so it it doesn't just provide a, a supply. It really furthers the educational opportunities for those medical students. So they can not only know you know, what are the the routine medical things that we need to learn in medical school, but what are the unique characteristics of our patients in this community? And what are the common issues that we need to, to deal with, and to address for the majority of our patients?
1: I'm going to change the subject again and go to emergency rooms because one of the things we've heard for years is that the emergency rooms are often crowded with people that really basically do not have an emergency, they're going there for their uh, first response to a problem. Uh, has, has there been any progress made in, in uh, dispersing some of these uh, patients to other first providers?
2: You know, we talked earlier about silver linings from the pandemic. One of the other silver linings is the federal government waived the requirement that we give full medical care to everyone who walks to the emergency department. And so we are now seeing the, the efficiency of offloading those patients, not offloading, more referring those patients out to an an urgent care or a, you know, Walgreens Minute Clinic. Um, Ideally, that sort of flexibility will remain. You know, our hospitals have figured out how to make sure that everybody who comes in gets the care they need. It just may not be the care that they need in that emergency department. And so having more of those folks routed to an urgent care will, will just, help in the future make sure that our eds are not crowded and then the final thing is we've got to figure out how to provide the services that our behavioral health patients need before they become emergent before they get to the emergency room we need to make sure they have the resources and the care they need to stabilize in the community as opposed to coming to the ed that still has not been addressed and we're still looking at ways to make sure that our state invests in the infrastructure to take care of our patients' mental health as well as their physical health.
1: Well, I was gonna say, uh, there's one thing that seems to be universal in uh, especially North Carolina, that is the agreement that uh, our mental health programs are not uh, uh, doing as good a job as the rest of the healthcare system. Uh, What do you think we need to do to work on that and, and get that up to the standards of our regular care?
2: Well, first and foremost, our our mental health providers, be it a a psychiatrist all the way to a nurse, um, they're not paid enough to, to deliver the care that they're supposed to deliver. Now, The federal government has a law that for physical health and mental health, the payment has to be the same, but that's not what happens. And so we need to make sure that across the spectrum, if a patient has insurance that covers psychiatric care, that that provider gets paid what they need to get paid for sustainability. Um, a lot of them are, are grossly underpaid. I would say another thing that we need to do is invest in the continuum of care, invest in making sure that everybody has access where they need it, starting with the schools. And you know, not to harp on telehealth again, but if we could get our telehealth platform for psychiatric care, as where it needs to be. Everybody who needs care could access it through their smartphone. And the provider that would be delivering that would be reimbursed for that service. Uh, if we start there, Don, I think we will cover a lot of ground.
1: Well, it's an interesting situation because also the courts and the uh, criminal justice system gets involved in so many cases of mental health and the, the, the uh, re resulting situation is who's in charge here is it the courts or is it the police or is it doctors uh, and where do people turn uh when they see other people needing mental health it, it's it's a hard question to answer
2: yeah we've worked with law enforcement and continue to do so to uh to assess a situation before they put a, a person in the back of a car um, you know we no longer need to criminalize behavioral health can you imagine uh getting in the back of a squad car for a cancer diagnosis i mean we shouldn't we should treat the behavioral health population and and those issues the same as we do physical ailments and we don't do that yet but we're getting there and i think we've been working with law enforcement and, and we've seen great advances from our police and our sheriffs on how to assess a situation and perhaps avoid a criminal issue by properly doing a field assessment with those patients
1: Let's, uh, turn a little bit, uh, uh, expanding this same thought here. Um, how, when the school system gets involved, K through 12, when they see situations that they think there's physical abuse, uh, who do they turn to?
2: They've got a protocol. So they, they do have, at least in Wake County, they've got a, a almost a phone tree, if you will, that they, um, they report that up. There's also a see something say something website with the State Board of Education, that uh, regardless of the issue, it could be violence, it could be behavioral health, uh, you can report that. And um, obviously, if we can at every time, we encourage parental engagement and involvement. But if the parent is the, the problem, then the school has a mechanism to involve both law enforcement and the care community. The idea is as soon as we, we find out there's an issue, that that student needs to be in touch with a behavioral health counselor, or provider as fast as we can get them there.
1: So, do you think the hospitals have uh, enough rooms set aside for mental health patients?
2: No, no, they don't. Um, and, and part of that is because federal law limits the amount of space that you can designate for behavioral health. Uh, the goal there is a very old law that is attempting to limit the amount of institutions. What we don't want is to institutionalize people just because they have a diagnosis. And so we need to make sure that we're within the guardrails of both state and federal law.
1: Well, mental health, of course, is certainly something that, uh, as I said, North Carolina sort of kicked the can on for, for years, and I think we are now addressing it, but it, uh, we, we appear to be Sort of behind the eight ball, and it's not the fall of the hospitals necessary I know that's your initial concern, but uh, it is a concern of all of us. Cody Han is our guest. He's the vice president, the senior vice president of government relations for the North Carolina Healthcare Association, and we will be back with our final segment of Carolina NewsMakers when we take uh, time out for these messages.
0: Hey, Han, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo,
1: do flowers have best friends?
0: I'm sorry. I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah,
2: I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay.
0: Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: Welcome to the final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. I guess this week is uh, Cody Hand and Cody has really given us a lot of really great information about uh, uh, his position with the North Carolina Healthcare Association and what the hospitals are faced with and, as they continue to provide health care for the state of North Carolina and its citizens and uh, also watching out for the continuing rising costs of that uh, as we discussed earlier we've got new advances uh, which often involve major expenses for new equipment. we also have an aging population and that puts more people in the system and of course North Carolina is just growing so all of these things are challenging to your association. what would you say if you were if I were to say what are the five biggest problems that you see that the hospitals in North Carolina are facing five or six whatever number you want to come up with, uh that you've got to uh uh spend a lot of time uh looking for solutions
2: boy five um so first of all i think you can can do ten if you want to (laughs) no no no, i don't have ten i'm trying to come up with five um so i think you know top of the line i think is decreased reimbursements from the federal government you know the medicare population is about uh, 50 percent of our population and they don't pay the cost of care And so that, that would be number one. I think number two would be prescription drug costs and uh, figuring out ways that we can provide those medications to our patients, but not bankrupt our patients at the same time. So that's number two. I think number three is staffing, Uh, staffing, staffing, and staffing. That may be my next three actually, Don is, uh, you know, we just don't have enough young people getting into healthcare, the healthcare field. And frankly, after two years, of a pandemic uh, followed by increased violence against our staff, you know, it, it's hard to make a sell um, to, to enter the workforce. But for your listeners, I'll tell you, going into nursing is one of the most rewarding fields. It's also a fairly well paying job. And so you can get right out of community college and go straight into a hospital and work. You should do that. I think number four would be um, increased scrutiny from. Uh, from frankly think tanks that don't really understand healthcare and and combating our patients who, not combating our patients, but our patients who come in with the information from a think tank rather than their doctor. And then I I would say, um, I would say number five is uh, our aging population. Uh, To your point, Don, our aging population, not only the fact that they're getting older, but a lot of them haven't gotten the care they need in the past couple of years. And so we're seeing more patients who are sicker than we were before the pandemic.
1: You mentioned staffing, and of course, that uh, also gets into the uh, business of rural care because you can't tell people where to live. That's right. And uh, uh, doctors particularly, I think, uh, because of their the very training that they receive, want to be close to hospitals because they know how much they depend on the hospitals. hospitals. So, how do we address the problem of getting uh, primary care physicians in the more rural areas of north carolina uh, i know that's not a problem of the hospital association but uh, directly but it's
2: indirectly a problem it is it is a problem for us and I, the the best way to do it don is to grow your own so we're working now with our department of education community colleges to really go into middle school and get middle schoolers interested in healthcare. by and large people return to where they grew up when they when they want to practice and so if you can train young people at home and give them the option of returning home by and large that's where you'll see an increase in rural providers is growing our own
1: I understand that uh, Medicare has a practice, uh, and I may be wrong about this, but they they were requiring physicians to spend less, uh, you know, a certain amount of time with each patient. They expect a doctor to see so many patients an hour, and I've heard from a number of doctors that they just can't practice good medicine that way. Uh, who sets those rules, and, and uh, who can address that problem?
2: You know, Medicare has many different rules, and they're often set by many different organizations. So there's MACPAC and MedPAC and all these other PACs. They're advisory committees that feed into the Medicare system. And the idea, I believe, was an innocent idea. We've got so many Medicare patients and so many doctors, and this is the way you make sure they all get seen. But it leads to the deeper problem, which is the payer, regardless of the payer, getting in between and dictating the kind of care that's received between from a doctor to the patient. And we need to get those sort of arbitrary rules out of the mix so that a doctor can spend 10 minutes with you if it's a minor issue or 40 minutes with you if they feel the need to do that. We really need to return the judgment to the doctor so that they can continue practicing medicine and giving their patients the best care that they need.
1: You mentioned earlier the big advancements and the the learning curve that we had during COVID on telemedicine. Where does telemedicine fit into what we've been discussing just in the last few moments here?
2: Well, it it fits in well, especially with your aging population. You know, a a, a lot of older North Carolinians live, they must drive to their doctor or to their hospital. What telehealth does is it allows them, if they've got a heart condition or a chronic ailment like diabetes, It allows them to be monitored at home. So most North Carolinians have a smartphone and if they don't have one, they can get one. And most most North Carolinians have access to the internet. Um, And so putting those patients at home and putting them on a telehealth platform means they don't have to risk driving to the doctor um, if they're sick or driving if they're elderly or getting a ride or missing work even. It means that they can stay home. What that also means for the supply of physicians is you can have a a physician who may not be sighted in North Carolina, but can see some patients throughout the day from North Carolina. So those patients get the care they need uh, from a physician.
1: Well, it looks like another thing that's always bothered me is especially during flu and cold season is you go to a doctor's office and everybody in the waiting room is sick
2: yeah <laughs> it doesn't look like yeah. it's a healthy place yeah. to be yeah yeah uh, and, and we saw that in covid i think one of the reasons the flu cases went down is because people weren't going to sit in a waiting room they were getting their care remotely
1: well that's uh you know as you said uh sometimes there's a silver lining to the darkest cloud and that uh, that may have been one of them as you look at legislation that uh is being considered right now by uh we'll first look at congress and then the state of north carolina what's on tap that might change things in a positive
2: way Uh, well congress right now is considering legislation to make their telehealth changes permanent Uh, we're encouraged by that um they continue to look at surprise billing legislation to make sure that it's fair between the payer and the provider Um, but as you know congress doesn't move fast on much of anything and that's probably for the better So those are the two I can think of with Congress. The General Assembly, uh, again, back to Medicaid expansion, the fact that both chambers have passed a bill on expansion is encouraging. The other program I mentioned earlier was the Healthcare Access and Stabilization Program. That language has passed four times this session. We're hoping that each side will, will pick one of those four and run with it. That program, again, will bring $3 billion to North Carolina. It's intended to shore up rural hospitals because it will bring in um, more reimbursement for the Medicaid population. And Don, when we're talking about struggling rural hospitals, they struggle because Medicare and Medicaid don't cover the cost of care. This program will actually make that happen.
1: You opened the program by talking about uh, one of your overall goals of the hospitals was trying to, and you used the word transparency, but I think uh, basically uh, we expanded that a little bit and say that uh, basically patients don't always understand the relationship and certainly their billing and so forth is very confusing. What are some of the steps that the, the hospitals are taking to uh, make that a better situation, more understandable by the patient?
2: Well, our interest in North, at, at the Healthcare Association and working with our members is to make sure that the patient experience from the very first entry into the system to the final bill isn't isn't just seamless, but it's transparent, and it's, it's frankly satisfactory. And, and to do that, we are engaging with our members, but we're asking our members to engage their patients. What we want to hear from, and I mentioned this then, Don, is we need to hear from the patients, what you expect, what you need. My belief is that we don't talk about the information that our patients need. We talk about the information they deserve and the information that they can use to make the best decisions they can make. Now, mind you, a good majority of a hospital's patients don't have a choice where they go because they're in the back of an ambulance. But for those that can plan ahead, that have the luxury of time, we want to make sure that at the end of the entire scenario, you not only got what you expected, but you paid what you expected and you knew all along what that was. Now, there are, several hurdles we have to get through um, to get there, but we are committed to doing it.
1: And as you said, uh, of course, at the same time, battling with the uh, costs and the costs that you have to pay to your vendors, uh-huh. uh, and uh, that may very well take an act of Congress to work on that. I, I'm not sure why the patients haven't raised more cane about that than they really have, because when you watch uh, political ads, you don't see an awful lot of attention being paid to prescription care uh, cost, and it is really, I think, uh, an issue that uh, uh, is hard to explain. Where things like uh, insulin are, costs are going up so so rapidly, and so forth, medicines that have been around for a long time. Uh, so, uh, final thoughts. Uh, you've got about a minute here to tell me. As you go to work tomorrow, what are you working on tomorrow? What are your immediate concerns? And. Uh, uh, What's at the top of your list?
2: You know, I think tomorrow I hope to wake up to a Medicaid expansion deal at the General Assembly and that they'll, they'll move that ball forward. Um, I, I want to say to your listeners, first of all, thank you. Um, your hospitals have been through a lot and our patients have been there for us and our communities as well. Uh, but third, you know, hospitals are open. If you've delayed your care because of COVID, it's time to come back. Uh, it's time to get that taken care of so that it doesn't get worse and so we're open and we're here for you and then finally Don, i'll just put this out there i want to hear from people about what they expect in their healthcare system not only with treatment but with costs and so i'm happy if anybody wants to email me at chand at they're welcome to i want to hear from as many people as possible um, about what they expect in the healthcare system because at the end of the day we all deserve good health care
1: Give that uh, email address one more time, but just a
2: tad slower. <laughs> C-H-A-N-D at N-C-H-A dot org.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Cody, thank you for your candidness and for your comments. Uh, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to Newsmakers.com and do just that. And, uh, Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and we'll have another interesting guest next week, same time, on the same group of stations, and we will look forward to being with you at that time. So until next week, same time, same station, we hope you and yours have a wonderful week.
0: Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com.